You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge in their complete lineup of knives and game processing kits. These guys right now are doing an absolutely huge giveaway where you could win an elk hunt and not just any elk hunt. We're talking about a seven or eight mile horseback ride into the backcountry. We're talking a one-on-one guided hunt. You're going to be sleeping in a wall tent and you're going to be doing that for five days with the founder and CEO of Outdoor Edge, David Block. Now, if you've never been on an elk hunt before, I'm telling you right now, go sign up for this because if you ever hear a elk bugle, whether it's at 400 yards or it's at 40 yards, it is a life-changing experience. So here's how you enter. Go to OutdoorEdge.com. There's going to be a big banner for it somewhere on their homepage. All you have to do is click on that. Go fill out some information. I think your name, your email address, maybe some other stuff. And that's all you have to do. That's how you are entered. They're going to be picking a winner oh, a ways from now. So you have plenty of time to enter. Go visit OutdoorEdge.com. Sign up today. Here we go. This is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get up there! Yeah! 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 Good boy! Good boy, Ranger! Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days how many days a week do you spend out As much as I can to be honest with you. Anytime that I get I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else, I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. Welcome back to the Houndsman XP podcast. And before we get too far down this rabbit trail. I want to make a clarification. A couple weeks ago, I said that Megan Perez had won the uh, high scoring Walker World Championship Walker in the 2020 World Championship Bench Show, and that was incorrect. Megan was actually the 2020 United Kennel Club World Champion. So that correction is made. Congratulations, Megan, and I want to make that shout-out to you before we get too far down the road. But this week on the Houndsman XP podcast, we have got a hard hunting houndsman from Northwest Montana, Casey Stutzman. 
people in these parts say that Casey is one of the hardest hunting houndsmen that you would ever want to meet. A short story that um, I've heard about Casey is another houndsman in the area was hunting with him, and um, it was getting late one evening, and the wife of this other houndsman called Casey's wife and um, said, hey, have you heard from the guys? And, and Casey's wife said, you know, to be honest, if I don't hear from him in two to three days, I don't really start worrying. So Casey is a hard hunter. He is uh, a student of pedigrees. He's a very astute breeder, and he's extreme performance in every aspect of the word, and it is our honor to have him on the podcast. So I know you're going to enjoy this. Before we get there, I want to tell you about Paws Are Protected, just like every week. I don't want you to get tired of it, but Paws Are Protected is a um, product that you need to be using on your pack. Build your pack from the ground up. If you can't take care of those feet, those dogs are not going to perform. And when you use Paws Are Protected as a preconditioner, then you'll keep those pads healthy. You'll keep them on their feet. You'll keep them in the race. You'll catch more game. Build your pack from the ground up with Paws Are Protected. Another thing that I want to talk to you about is Freedom Hunters. Freedom Hunters is taking veterans from field to field, providing them opportunities. You're seeing them all over social media right now. We're sharing their posts. This is their time of the year. They're getting after it and getting those veterans out in the field. And we've got several hound events coming up that people have gotten involved with and uh, taking these veterans, Gold Star family members, out on hunting adventures. If you are interested in hosting an event, drop me an email at chris.houndsmanxp at freedomhunters.org and we will get you on the right path to hosting America's Warriors on a hound hunting adventure. Last thing I want to talk to you about is Patreon. I want to tell you, I really appreciate all of the support that we have gotten from our Patreon supporters. Patreon is an opportunity for you to support this podcast, keep us on the air. The podcast is free. Okay, you can listen to this podcast every week. It's not going to charge you a dollar not going to charge you uh, cost you a dime so it's free however if you want opportunities at great products like paws are protected uh, the hound journal from stick bow outdoors phone scope um, some other industry leader leading items if you want to uh, get a special deal on coolers and tumblers and other premium hunting gear then join us on Patreon. We will offer you training tips for tailgate talks, um, special offers on premium hunting gear. All that is included in your Patreon support. So the podcast is free. It'll always be free. You can click on iTunes. You can listen to it. But if you want to take that next step to help us protect, preserve, and promote hound hunting across the United States, then you can do so for as little as a dollar a show 
by going to houndsmanxp.com, clicking on Patreon, and supporting this show. And we will use your money to preserve, protect, and promote hound hunting across the United States and across the globe. We're giving a voice to you, the houndsman. So we appreciate every one of you, and we truly do love our hounds. We love houndsmen, and we want to support you. And you can help us do that by joining us on Patreon and joining a community of elite houndsmen who are supporting this podcast. And just want to say thank you for that. So, again... Hey, we're ready to roll this podcast out with Casey Stutzman. My buddy Larry Anderson sits in. Doesn't say a whole lot, but he's here. And uh, welcome to Houndsman XP, and thank you for your support this week, and thanks for listening to the podcast. I'll start with just talking about, like, the first, the first time I seen a wolf track when it actually you know, how that changed. Do you remember the day, the oh, first yeah. time you saw one? Yeah, it was probably in 2000, probably 2000, I suppose, 2001, somewhere in there. And uh, I just remember we were out looking you know, for a lion track or a bobcat to run, and, and here's this, we're, we're you know, we're kind of downriver quite a ways looking for something, and, and here's this just great big dog track trailing down the road, just a single. And uh, it, it, you just kind of thought, well, who on earth would be out here with a with a St. Bernard? You know what I mean? It just made no sense. It didn't even, like, really register. And we're like, I, I really think that's a wolf track, you know? Mm. And it went from that and then two, three, four years later to where every road, you know, it just became so commonplace. And, and, and we always worried about, you know, you know, you'd hear about people having problems with wolves and, and up in Canada and everything else, they've had issues with wolves forever with hounds. But, but, uh, the first time that, um, that we actually had a, uh, um, an incident, um, we, we did everything we could all the time too. It changed how we did, did everything. We were careful. We've always been careful, but, um, but the time when, uh, Julie got killed. We were uh, it was snowing real hard one morning. We we're just about to call it because there was just almost too much snow, too fresh. And uh, I ended up bumping into to Larry and Paul, and we decided to hit one more road just kind of for the heck of it, even though it, it was still snowing really hard, and it just dropped 10, 12 inches, something like that. And so we slid into... Up, up one more road, just kind of more, because it was a. We all had the day off, and and we just gonna give it one more go, and and sure enough, here's a smoking fresh lion track. I mean, it was, I don't know, minutes old. Yeah, minutes old. And uh, so, um, kicked out a few hounds. I think um, Paul had a couple. I don't remember if you had a couple. I had a couple. Yeah, and and I had, to, I kicked out one dog and. And, uh, um, of course, I got a dog in the box, and she's just like a finished three-, three-, four-year-old dog, and I, I didn't need to really run her that day, and everybody had a lot of dogs. And I had some other dogs in the box, but I thought, oh, shoot, this thing's going to tree right here in the draw. So I, I just kind of kicked her out just to make her shut up more than anything. And so and I think what happened there was uh, 
you know, back to the same thing as that, you know, there's two freshest snow. We didn't know what, you know, there could have been wolves tracks underneath that snow six hours ago. We don't know, but regardless, they were, they kind of do live on that ridge and the lion didn't, didn't stop. He kept on, kept on running and ran up over that ridge and kind of down the ridge a ways and then dropped back down and he took them right, I, what I believe happened is he just took those dogs right up through the bed uh, where all them wolves were bedded up. And uh, they were all bedded up for that big snowstorm and just kind of laid up. And and uh, I really think that the, the main pack of dogs, you know, ran right through the middle of them. And they probably all stood up and looked at each other and said, what the heck was that? And and uh, I believe one, a loner wolf or somebody, or one of the individuals took off after those main pack of dogs because a couple of them got bit up in the hind end but then since julie had gotten kicked out 10 minutes late you know here she come five minutes later behind that main pack of dogs or just a couple minutes later and and uh i think three of them got on her because they had gone on her from either end and, and then one right in the middle and so and then another dog of mine had gotten another single wolf had taken off after him and he was just running for his life called to him probably 1200 yards away we were uh, was, he was all the way on a face straight across from me and he heard me and ran to me like a shot out of a rifle looking you know he was looking for me and he once he got to me he's turned around growling and he was chewed up in the hind end and uh but uh so julie was the only one that actually got killed that day but i think we got pretty lucky that was all that happened really way lucky yeah yeah so then we you know of course that was the end of trying to catch a cat that day and we just rounded everybody up, and but it had been a, a real ordeal. But you know, taught us a lesson, obviously, that you can't trust. Um, you know, so so hunting in snow conditions will, especially lots of fresh snow conditions, can be just as difficult to determine where them wolves are at sometimes. Yeah. As as no snow, you know, and um, you know another incident we we had was uh, another terrible deal we had uh go ahead let's just break in right there and welcome everybody to the houndsman xp podcast and introduce our crowd today so i've got casey stutzman from uh marion montana and you just heard a story about how wolves have changed the uh the hunting culture and the practices of hunting with hounds and in uh this corner of montana northwest montana here and and uh appreciate you sharing that story with us and we got a repeat larry anderson's back on the mic that's the other other uh voice you heard coming in here so um i'm glad to have you on the the podcast yeah casey it's it's a pleasure i mean you've got a lot of history with with hounds and and how you um you know the things you're doing with your hounds and you're a student of the hounds and pedigrees and different stuff like that. That's why I wanted to have you on and the work that you've done with the state of Montana and their mountain lion studies, that's going to be an interesting topic, but uh, let's just, let's just talk a little bit. Let's let that conversation go uh, about how the wolves have changed hunting for you and what you've seen over the years. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, first off too, thanks for letting me, you know, come on and, it's, uh, uh, you know, just being a, uh, we're, we are nobody special. We're just another guy that enjoys running dogs and gets obsessed with it. And, uh, um, 
but it it's it's always fun to sit around and talk talk hounds and and uh um but back to the question about the wolves we uh um yeah it's truly changed everything we do you know i mean it it's it's kind of run the full gamut with me emotionally you know from you know from hating them and or wanting to quit or and then to almost retaliate and go in the other way and say I'm going to hunt <laughs> twice as hard just to prove I ain't going to quit. And, right. And, um, you know, it's kind of ended up somewhere in the middle where it's changed It's changed the number of dogs I keep around, you know. Um, it's changed who I hunt together, specifically in crosses, to make sure that, you know, I don't lose individuals together that are valuable in a particular corner of a, of a bloodline. Um, it's changed, you know, you're, you're definitely on the edge, but, but I've also kind of come full circle into where I just hunt again, you know, and I just say it is going to be what it's going to be. And I'm still careful, you know, I, we do everything you can, but, but you come to the point where after you've done everything you can, you just still just got to go and enjoy them yeah. and, and let the dogs be, be hounds and kick them loose and make them learn and, and let them do what they're meant to do. Cause Otherwise, it'll consume you. Right. You know, it'll it'll consume everything you do, and it, it, it becomes fearful. It takes the fun out of it, you know. And and there is that element, but but uh, if I, you know, if we if we weren't uh, gonna turn loose a dog in a time when it, there was no risk involved, why we wouldn't go hunting? Yeah. So. Yeah. Lauren, Lauren, and I were having a conversation in a previous podcast about wolves, and she summed it up real real well. She said. I'm not going to stop hunting because there's wolves in the woods, you right. know. Um, these are our woods, and I yep. can be here as much as they can. But I think there's a lot of spinoffs on what you just said, you know, things about bloodlines and how you – like that's a good that's a good spinoff from, yeah. from that because you have been a student of pedigrees and different stuff. So how long have you known this guy? I mean, how, well, yeah, well, you Larry. know, shoot, Larry and I, we just pass each other in the woods once in a while here and there and – and, you don't uh, like to hunt with him all the time so, either. Well, <laughs> we uh, we just did it. Maybe just a couple loners is the problem, you know. Um, um, but then we we finally, uh, you know, we, we we did bump bump together and run a dog a couple few times. But really, literally, we haven't really hunted a, together a lot. But we've appreciated a lot of the same things and a lot of the same pieces of country we hunt in, and and. Uh, both appreciate a good dog, so. Casey yeah. and I used to pick the nastiest country to hunt because yeah. we'd always have it to ourselves. And if there was another another pickup track, it was like, oh, Casey's up here. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. nobody really wanted to hunt the rough, crappy country. So right. him and I just load up. He'd go to load his box, I'd load mine, and we'd cross <coughs> some pathing here and there and yeah. about everywhere. Yeah. But usually in places nobody else wanted to run. All right. Yeah. It was nice because we always had it to ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it might not be too smart, but uh, but we usually can find a way to get away by ourselves that way. So, um. yeah. So, uh, tell, how long have you been hunting, Casey? Um, see, I got dogs in uh, ninety uh, ninety seven. So, um, how was, how old were you when you first I, got your? I was first just turned fifteen. So turned fifteen. So you yeah. got into it early in life. Yeah, my I didn't grow up with dog uh, with hounds. You know, um, grew up kind of farming and ranching, and and uh, you know that sort of sort of life. So uh, animal husbandry was natural to me. But um, but the aspects uh, of running hounds was was 
was pretty interesting. I um, was introduced to Hounds through my, uh, well, he became my brother-in-law when I married his sister-in-law, but uh, her and I had been best friends all growing up, and and so I, he had a couple hounds, and and uh, was he was a younger fella getting into it at that time, and and uh, so him and I just kind of became good friends, and I just kind of got obsessed with it. Uh, my, you know, much to to the dismay of my my basketball coaches and yeah. everybody else, you know, I kind of all that stuff went by the wayside, and I, I didn't, you know, I didn't play sports my um, my senior year, and and. Uh, and then just yeah, just stuck with it, and you know we chased a lot of deer for a while, and right. you know, and we we never had enough money to buy track and equipment, nothing, and and so and what was it about what was it about hounds that made you give up high school sports, <laughs> athletics, things like that? What what can you put your finger on one thing that? Um, just made you think man this is what i want to do i'd rather do this and play basketball or anything else i think a lot of it was i felt a um uh, a duty to my dogs i had puppy you know a few pups yearlings at that time and it's like these dogs need to be hunted if i'm mm-hmm. going to do this they deserve for me to take the time and and make them into what they can become and take them to the woods and and so it, i think it was more of like um I couldn't just let them sit around. Once I had decided, then I felt this a, a great duty to, you know, to work as hard as they as they do. Mm-hmm. And so, in order to do that, everything else kind of just took a took a back seat. But, um, but my um, and I hunted together there. My um, brother in law and I, we enjoyed um, hunting together. And like I said too, it was, you know, we were we were both learning and learned a lot of things the hard way and. He went on to have great, good dogs, and and I did too. And we 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 didn't after a while we didn't hunt together as much, but um, but you know still still enjoyed that um, same bond of running hounds. And so it was kind of the blind leading the blind. And, it, it and was somewhat, you know, and uh, and both of us, you know, ended up being able to hunt with other fellas and learned a lot. And and uh, you know there was a few guys that let me tag along, you know, when I was eighteen you know 19 years old was married really young and started having children not long after that and so so life was busy but we um um just yeah just kept kept keeping on tried everything under the sun as far as dogs were concerned you know like what oh just different crossbred dogs and picked up you know this and that and the other thing and and had some great cross dogs you know and um had you know red dogs and blue tick walker dogs and so what point did you become a student of pedigrees and things like that when did when did that all click for you because you've you've been pretty true to a couple well breeds and yeah lines the, the um you know I, I got my first um my first dogs i got off of jim harrell and uh he he had the um some dogs that came from uh um, Del Cameron, and uh, so I was pretty early in when he had really just had those dogs, um, just started down that that particular road. He's been faithful to those Cameron dogs, and so I, I ended up with those to start with, and uh, didn't really, I mean, to a degree, I knew what I had. I was fortunate, started out with some really great dogs that just kind of did it in spite of me, and uh, um, always felt blessed to have started with some really good hard hunting dogs but mm-hmm. um um 
but to a degree, I always kind of felt like there's some other silver bullet out there. And I just really wanted to, to try a lot of different things. It wasn't so much that I didn't appreciate what I had, but I really wanted to know for sure that what I had was what I wanted to keep for the long haul. I didn't mm-hmm. want to second guess myself knowing right. that I had some average stuff. And, and what I found through that is there's just a lot of good dogs out there, you know. And if you hunt hard and you put a lot into them, you'll get a lot out of them. But the consistency that I found in that particular bloodline um, is the reason I stuck with those dogs. And, uh, and it took, you know, Jim was, he's a, he's a really good friend of mine, and, and we're still, you know, close, some of the closest friends to this day. But, uh, and uh, we've worked together for 10, 12 years also and seen each other every day. So it's, um, so we have a close relationship, but, uh, it was probably, I don't know, eight, ten years after I had those first dogs. He's like, are you done dinking off, screwing around with all those other crossbred mutts, and you're going to keep some dogs that you yeah. can actually help me out here in this program? Cause, um, and, and I was already a, kind of somewhat dialed in on those particular genetics and what, what I, you know, was I was very interested, let's put it that way, um, even before I was breeding. So I was always pestering Jim about different dogs and he's like man you you seem to enjoy this as much as more than I do why don't you you know help me out here and and so I've been fortunate to get good dogs off of Jim for a lot of years and uh so that's kind of my that was kind of how I got started into those into that line of blue dogs that I got and one thing I've noticed about the best houndsmen uh there's a couple common factors one is they hunt a lot they hunt smart, and uh, it doesn't seem like there's anything in their life that they do halfway. You know, just like you said, you, uh, you hunt hard. The harder you hunt, the better dogs you're going to have. Yeah. Um, and but you're kind of extreme, and a lot of you know. If I, I, I was just fortunate enough to come up to your place and see the cabin that you're building and stuff right right. you know and this log scribes and stuff are perfect and you know everything around your place is is uh you keep it all your collars are lined up and you've got everything lined out so it's it's apparent from meeting you and talking to you and stuff and and seeing the way you live your life that that you're pretty extreme on on a lot of a lot of things well kind of you know, jack of all trades, master of nothing, I would say, because, but I do enjoy a lot of different things. I enjoy learning and, and, um, and yeah, that, that is a goal. You, you try to, you know, do your very best at whatever it's in front of you, mm-hmm. you know. How and, important do you think learning so, is to hound, for houndsmen? Oh, it's everything, you know, I think, I think, uh, you know, we constantly are learning and, and I've been just fortunate to meet a lot of great guys and picked up little bits and this and so I guess I I, I do also just want to reiterate man I I just don't <laughs> I don't think I'm anybody special yeah uh and and um but that's my biggest joy that's and that's why like I've kind of always been a loner to a degree mm-hmm. um had a few guys that we hunted together per- fairly steady off and on for periods of time especially when they were getting into it or whatever and then they ended up having great dogs and they went on and did their own thing, which was good. Um, I've always had a lot of puppies around, and I've always got youngsters. Yeah. And so I tended to always, uh, more than anything, I don't want to go and wreck your your day by having my puppies screw up. But anytime I could get a day to go and hunt with somebody else, like like Larry or you know Scott Olson or Jim Harrell or 
some of these guys that we didn't hang out with them a lot, but but man, you can pick up an awful lot, you know. And starting from nothing, you you really did that, and then you know, and then and then reading good books and mm-hmm. and studying that aspect of it. I think it's all important to try to glean whatever you can from whoever you're around, and and sometimes that's what not to do, maybe, you know. Yeah, we've all met met that guy, but but uh, um, I, I think if you don't set the bar high for your dogs and for yourself you know then you're gonna you're gonna just always be right there in the middle somewhere yeah you know that's a cool that's i've seen that in coon hunters in the east i've seen it in and everywhere in between you know yeah. uh houndsmen in the west and yeah we do it because we like to be out there and we just yeah. love the mountains and stuff yeah. but but even as much as um I love it. I still, I still don't want to be embarrassed by my hounds. And right. I've kind of changed my attitude a little bit just because I don't. I, I've got a couple right now that are kind of spun out and crazy. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, they're a little bit spun out. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Larry's whole pack spun out. So yeah, <laughs> they're, yeah they are. They're yeah. pretty, pretty wound. But, but, ADHD or something. Yeah. yeah, but you know, it's in the past. If I if I was turning a hound loose, I wanted it to to be as good in it as anything that was yeah. it was being hunted with yeah. and even to the individual hound each individual yeah. hound i don't you know i tried not to keep try not to keep stuff that's gonna set me back yeah uh and coon hunting in the east is a lot different than yeah. western houndsmen you know the way you hunt out here a lot of times you know i'm hunting single dogs at night by themselves sure. in indiana and uh, but still i mean if you decide you're going to take a couple you don't want one of your dogs if you're chasing dogs that that are out trashing and doing all that stuff that's time that you're not hunting yeah you know? and it's yeah and it's taken away from what they could be learning yeah i think you know there's a lot of times out west here guys that hunt by themselves and there's a lot of guys that hunt with a lot of other people but a lot of times it can be easy to not have something to compare your own dogs against you know it's easy to say you know oh we got beat by that you know we didn't catch that track today or whatever nobody else would have yeah well that doesn't necessarily mean they wouldn't have you know maybe the next guy coming up would have maybe my dogs that are dead and gone would have caught that same track but you always have to be really honest about what you have right in front of you right now i think and um but there's we kind of it's kind of a i think always been it's a, a neat thing about competition world is that there's dogs that are kind of trying to be measured up against all these other dogs and so there becomes these standards Mm -hmm. and there becomes you know you'll know in a real hurry if what you got is junk Mm -hmm. you know where out here if you're just hunting by yourself all the time you might think your dogs are pretty good (laughs) but they might be just not you know so (laughs) so it's it's good to you know to go listen to somebody else's dog's trail for once in a while and and really measure up and be honest that way so that you know that what you're doing and the other sense of that is that is if they're pleasing you that's that's enough too right you know you can be hypercritical of your pack and i kind of boundary around that probably more often than i ought to i do too um and they got to be able just to be a dog and make mistakes once in a while right and uh you know and i you know but but you can't also let you can't also make mistakes you know make excuses for them all the time either right. so um my perception of that though is it's important to um find that balance you know you're always seeking that balance but i, I kind of went through phases where i was pretty sure i had the best around and wanted everybody to know about it and 
you know, and then and then and then I went through seasons where those dogs were dead and gone, and I was starting over, and and uh, you know, or hunting a pile of youngsters, and maybe they were going to be good, but they weren't yet. And if you're basing your own success on everybody else's opinion of your dogs, you're, you're you know that's not right either. But but they better be. Uh, but I think there is value in in going and, and hunting with somebody else <coughs> once in a while, and 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 maybe not even dumping your own dogs, letting their pack run a race, mm-hmm. and then you take the next track. Yeah, because you you know you don't get that dynamic of, of mixed dogs getting dumped together and having weird stuff happen, which is yeah, which is hard to do typically. If you're out with somebody else, you both dump a few. And you end up Sometimes with, I just like to jump in with other people and just watch their dogs go and not turn a dog out and just. Just see how their program works or see how their dogs just excel or what they do. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, a lot of times I'll just run mine into the ground and yep. they can't be hunting. Yep. But I still want to go in the woods even though my dogs can't. So I'll just yep. invite myself to jump in with somebody else and, yep. and maybe learn something. Or Yeah. Um, and and somebody else might be seeing something that you're not when they're listening to your pack of hounds going, that dog up there it seems like to me he's... You know, and you're like, I didn't really see it that way because maybe in your own mind you had a different perception of that individual. And, um, but I, but I do also think it's important that as a human and as a person, my own value isn't in my dog. You know, I, uh, that's an awful burden for those dogs to bear. Right. And you know, and then when they fail, I, you know, um, you know, so. So the competitive side of it, I think, is great because I think it drives you towards perfection and it mm-hmm. drives you for a high standard. Um, but I think as people, you know, you have to, um, you just have to be able to be honest and, and recognize that you don't have the best right to now. But that doesn't mean that me as a person, I'm not, I'm not a good hunter or that I'm not giving it my all or that tomorrow these same dogs might not excel and do better. Right. And and so if you can kind of separate those emotions from, I think from a lot it of a little uh, bit, you know, some of the houndsmen that have been in it for a long time and have established their own bloodlines, I see two different camps. One is they think that their whole identity is and their values and their standards are defined on what type of dog they're hunting. Yeah. And then there's another camp of guys that are like, they're doing the best they can do today. Yeah. I'm gonna keep hunting them. I'm gonna keep. You know, I've still got yeah. these high standards, but where they're they're more realistic about it, you know, and yeah. and uh, they're not prideful about it. They understand that that uh, every dog's going to have a bad day, or or and uh, I see I see see two different camps there from some yeah. of the guys that have been in it for for a long time, and and when you start trying to compare what you've got to everybody else, yeah, man, that can be a that can be a Pandora's box. You know, because what somebody else likes may not be like, be what you like. Yeah. And so, but I've also, you know, after you've been a houndsman for a while, what a good dog is. Yeah. You know, and you brought up competition hunting and that's interesting because, you know, I got to the point where I kind of felt like that I knew what a good hound was and I didn't need the approval of of a registry to tell me that I had a good dog. Sure. You know, it's a deal where you know what a good dog is. So what I need to go spend my money for them to tell me that I've got a good dog so that I can go out and brag or breed or whatever. Um, but, um, 
yeah, it's a, it's a it's a different world for you know competition hunting versus big game hunting. We'd talked, and I've talked to to UKC about setting up a hunt hunt test for big game game houndsmen that can get their pack certified. You know, like a four dog pack or whatever, and and that's not a dead issue yet. We're just looking for people to uh, to jump on board with that right. and. I think that'd be kind of cool, yeah. you know, where you you have a, a rep for the region, and it's like, hey, you know, uh, I've got a pretty pretty decent group of dogs here, pack of dogs here. I'd like to maybe get them certified, you know, not that they need it, but I don't know. It might be it might be something that that could get some traction someday. Yeah, I don't know for sure because you're talking about the same thing that drives guys to go to the pkc and the ukc hunt back home yeah yeah i want to compare my dogs to what everybody else has got yeah that's what makes makes that wheel turn yeah and i think i think it's just important in in maintaining knowing that you're still doing things right if you're if you're breeding dogs and mm-hmm. you know they need to you know then if you're if, if you're only staring at your own dogs the rest of your life you really won't know that's exactly right and that's the flip side to what i said you know yeah. even though i know what a good dog is sometimes you know that's not an excuse if you can't you can't walk into a, a clubhouse back east and say i got the best dog here but i'm not in, entering him tonight right you right. know that that has no yeah. traction either yeah. <laughs> so but there also is a sense too with which you know and i i, I wanted to hit on that you were talking about the pride aspect there's there's also guys out there and i mean i even I, I can understand that myself as uh, you know i had this mixed up bunch of mutts and it's like well i must be something special because i don't need all them high-powered well-bred dogs and i catch everything on the mountain you know and so there's a you know and i do it a bunch of pound dogs you know mm-hmm. and and so there can be arrogance both directions i right. guess yeah um um there's a lot of humility in that's i think important in running hounds uh, for one, they're the ones doing all the work for crying out loud. But but two, also there's just there's lots of men that came before you and that uh, that allowed me to have what I have today. Mm-hmm. And and so, um, you know, I get to reap the benefits of a lot of other people's work for the most part. You know, ne- you know, here down the road we'll see if if what my what I've, what I've contributed to it is is bettered it or or kept it the same or 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 lost it. So, um, so I say that not to, um, uh, just to make make that point that uh, it's um there's a lot of guys that 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 don't want that high powered dog they paid money for because it really makes me look better if I can do it with nothing. You know? mm-hmm. So, well, um, you talked about you hit on something right there. <clears throat> Nobody has the right to drive their stake in the ground and say, I created all of this. You know, Yeah. I don't know the first guy that ever caught a lion with a hound. Right. You know, chucking a spear at it or, you know, who was the first guy that figured out that you could use a dog? There's pictures of them drawn on cave walls, yeah. but we don't know who they are. And, you know, we've just, as humans, we've developed those skills over time. And there's been, it's like mile markers in the yeah. in the road mm-hmm. as you go you know people have or it's like the uh when you drive down the the salmon and you see the lewis and clark uh, uh signs mark historical markers right. you know they did this at this point and i think we could do that with our houndsmen you know yeah i know nance bread walkers in the west have, have made an impact in the big game world 
Lester Nance was a coon hunter from Indiana. Sure. You know, White River King was the first first walker. Um, and uh, look what that, but I don't know that Lester Nance, he lived in Indiana his whole life. Yep. He's, so that's that's a historical marker in, in our houndsman. No, absolutely. And so I think it's, you know, I, I just consider it kind of a great honor to have been able to start with some, some clean lines that, um, that consistently reproduce what I like mm-hmm. and, and they're not always for everybody and, and, and teach his own. And that's okay. I think that's another part of in the hound rule that's important that we all say that it's all right not to appreciate the same things. And, you know, even Larry and I, our dogs aren't, 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 aren't a lot alike. Um, I mean, some ways they are obviously, but, but, you know, I, I, uh, had one of his that, uh, you know, they had a few issues that just were, to me, it bothered me. That dog went on to be probably one of the finest dogs, you know, bear catching dogs up in Canada. And, I mean, tremendous dog. You know, I would, and you know, and I passed on that dog. Mm-hmm. And and it's just because he had a few quirks that, to me, just, man, drove me nuts. Mm-hmm. And and that's not a bad thing, you know. Um, and it doesn't mean that I should have necessarily kept that dog. And, and Larry's had a few of these dogs, and, and there's attributes in them that drive him nuts, you know. And so it's okay. Yeah. You know, I can look at his dogs and appreciate his dogs for what they are, you know, and I think he'd say the same thing about me, but it doesn't necessarily – and there's individuals. Let's I'm see sure. if he'll say the same thing. Yeah. What do you think? What, you got anything to say? Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah. And, and all the houndsmen I've ever met, he hunts the hardest. Yeah. Of anybody. Yep. 20 years. He's, he's – yeah. Hunts hard. He hunts. Hunts yep. hard. Harder than anybody I've ever met. So you cut timber, and then in the wintertime you kind of slack off of that and then go full bore. Yeah, so my story, I've built houses for a lot of years. Right. I, you know, right out of high school I started cutting timber, and and uh, that's what I wanted to do. But um, kind of realized pretty close off the bat that I needed to have some other skill sets as well. Um, yeah just because of the industry, especially around here, wasn't too strong. And, and, uh, but, uh, chased helicopters for a while, falling trees, and then, um, got to work and doing construction and enjoyed that, learned a lot and, uh, had my own, my own outfit and, and did really well for a lot of years doing that. And it, it still could be if I wanted to, but. So you were one of those guys that was cutting timbers for the helicopters coming in and yeah, yeah, I didn't saw for the helicopters for a lot of years, but off and on, you know, combined probably a couple of years out. Those are some crazy around, so. videos. I've watched those on yeah. YouTube, and uh, man, that is that's some crazy stuff right there. Guys sitting down and seeing the helicopter coming. The guy sharpens a chain in like thirty seconds. I don't even know how he did it. You know, he's just getting ready to knock the next tree down, and because he can see that. And that helicopter's not going to sit there and wait for him to sharpen his saw. And... <laughs> yeah, we it, it was it was always a ride. You know, I called it as the rotor turns. There's always a lot of dra- <laughs> drama involved. There was always, uh, you know, it was hurry up and wait kind of work. And uh, it, at times it was boom and bust. It was good pay. And, and then, you know, and then there's times when you move to four jobs in three weeks and you just spent all your money traveling and just because things get shut down. But kind of high stakes jobs. But... Enjoyed the work, you know, and obviously, you know, there's something about cutting timber that any anybody who's ever done it will tell you it just gets in your blood. It's uh, you 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 ask yourself why it's usually wet and cold or frying hot or yeah. you know it's always extremes, but 
you get to be out in the woods and which and takes us back to beautiful that extreme lifestyle you yeah. know casey stutzman i'm going to cut oh, t- trees for helicopters sure. i'm going to do this i'm going to hunt the best dogs i can uh, i'm going to hunt 200 days this year whatever it is you know and yeah we so we went to doing the construction and uh and kind of bounced back and forth anytime i got slow i'd go back to falling timber but but spent most of my life doing um construction and all phases of that yeah uh, and got to where just and, and the houses you built they weren't they weren't shacks no we've been fortunate we got to you know this area has a lot of high-end construction and so it's challenging you know it's enjoyable there's always a real a lot of problems to solve and, and right. challenging work and kind of got into the timber frame side of things um um and so did a lot of a lot of more tenant timber framing and and enjoyed that enjoyed round log and, and stuff like that so but but whatever paid the bills kind of too it was um you know we been able to do a little everything and uh i grew up my dad was a plumber so i grew up on job sites ever since i was a little kid right and so i always watched them old guys slinging big hammers and that looked pretty cool and you know and um um but but I got a good awareness of all the things that go into building a house, I think, as a fairly young kid. Yeah. And and that really benefited me um, later on in life, knowing everybody's task and what it takes for each person and being mm-hmm. able to lay things out to where everybody else can benefit and get done quick. And and so, anyway, we moved on to that. And um, then I've been trying to trying to move uh, actually out of, the, out of uh, Montana here for a few years. We... Spent a lot of time and and uh, um, looked at moving to Idaho quite a few different times and just just doors kept kind of closing and and that was okay too but we um, I, I was down in Utah here a couple of years ago and and built a couple houses down there actually um, log homes and uh, that was kind of an adventure um, we looked at trying to buy property down there couldn't just nothing seemed to work out and I ended up back home and uh, when I um, through that process down there, though, it was pretty neat just because I, I got to, um, I was fortunate enough to get to hunt a lot while I was down there. And uh, just, it was a good learning experience. And mm-hmm. it, was, it, was, it was got to meet some different folks, um, see a different way of hound life for sure, right. you know. And uh, and uh, and that was uh, just a, yeah, so anyway, it was a great experience. But, um, but uh, ended up coming back up here and they were needing help sawing again. So that was a couple of years ago. So last, or just three years ago so mm-hmm. i'm i've been back up here falling timber ever since and then that outfit i work for i do a lot of fabrication and welding and yeah stuff for them he seems to they seem to break a lot of stuff so i keep fixing it <laughs> so 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 when you move back up here you got involved with the montana fish wildlife and parks yeah so you know this was a um here they've been doing on uh, the state had been doing um a lot of study work um, and trying to, to, to develop a new mountain lion management program for the state. And uh, a lot of that all came back to um, a lot of work that... Uh, I want to break this yeah. down to the most simple, because there's people back east or people in Australia yeah. that, that will not understand what the purpose of this is. So sure. I, I really want to break it down to the lowest levels first Yep, and talk about some of that stuff, you know, like, I'll just ask you, what's, what's the purpose of doing a mountain lion study? 
So this there's lots of different reasons that different studies will will take place, and and I can't um, speak to to a lot of that. But um, this particular project um, was to determine um, mountain lion densities. Mm -hmm. um, so, and to be able to accurately um, build. Um, uh, a management program, in other words, uh, however many you know animals need to be removed from a particular area, um, if, so they could do that with some level of accuracy, not mm -hmm. just guessing what they have on the landscape, and and that's always been a, a challenge. They're tough animals to to monitor. They're tough animals to estimate. Um, you know, you talk to one crew, they say there's a billion of them, and you talk to the next, and they say there's none, and and so just there's just a lot of varying opinions, and so. The, the biologists are, are constantly trying to keep their finger on the pulse of truly what's going on. Mm -hmm. And they do that a number of ways, but there's never been like real consistent science to be able to do it. It's always kind of, they're always kind of just trying to feel out the pulse of the, of the, of, of numbers. And so this, this particular study and, and they're the, um, the gal who, uh, put together basically the, the study method and I'm, and, um, and, there's probably other other um, people involved, but uh, Kelly Prophet did the work on that. They, um, to my knowledge, basically they took several years and uh, and and used this study method down in the um, central western part of the state and uh, used houndsmen to uh, to collect DNA sample data um, through kind of a just a real structured method of of uh working their way through through country and uh through sections through regions of yep. of the montana yep and uh so there's actually a, a, a particular study area they go in and they they sample basically everything they can find within that area and there's with with a structured way of going about it mm -hmm. um and there's a lot of other stuff built into these algorithms that way smarter people than me um you know know how i can't even really explain all of that part of it but but they they're were they're probably taking the data that you're gathering and comparing it with data that on other tests and, and studies that they're doing like you know hair samples you sure. know they're they're setting up bait stations or, or going to kill sites and collecting dna there and then they're comparing it to yours and seeing how far away did you catch this mountain lion from this known location that we got a DNA sample at this kill site, and now Casey Stutzman is catching this lion 12 miles away or 30 miles away. Yeah, they. I'm sure they do put any other information they get from other anything else, but for the most part, this particular study, it's a capture-recapture method, and what they're doing is the amount of times, and the and they take into account the areas, and then they can check genetic diversity amongst mm -hmm. a group. And uh, so obviously... They take samples too out of any animals that get harvested in that study area and around that study area to also take those animals out yeah. of the equation. And like I said, the actual science uh, aspect of it is not my uh, uh, perfect understanding. But they had they've worked alongside of us as houndsmen, um, which which I have to say that in the state of Montana, we've had an excellent. Um, relationship with fish wildlife and parks in regards to our mountain lion management stuff um they uh they truly are friends of the houndsmen and 
Um, Jim Williams up here in Region 1, you know, you don't have to talk to him long to to see that he has a, a high regard for houndsmen. And, and he's, you know, so that we've been, we've, we've been fortunate, even statewide, to have a pretty good a good working relationship. And, and a lot of that's through the use of houndsmen for doing study work. And, mm-hmm. and I'd say that's all over the place. But, um, but anyway, they, uh, um, there was a, they used houndsmen down in, in that portion and they, they, they kind of tested out this study model mm-hmm. to see how effective it was and how accurate it was. And, and, uh, so they spent a lot of time and effort to kind of prove out that this was going to be a good way to study mountain lions. And uh, there was uh, quite a few different houndsmen, really good houndsmen involved in that project. And uh, Cody and the Ray Henson um, down there out of Phillipsburg, they they were heavily involved in that whole period of time as well. And they're still they're they're in, uh, involved in, in 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 this now. But to give a reference on the Montana's Mountain Lion Management Program now, as a state, we've really restructured even the way that we look at. Um, managing lions. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at it in, in regards to ecoregions, basically areas that kind of s- have similar habitat support, you know, so rather than breaking it down like in a section from the north of the highway and, and east of the river, you know, they right. it's more broken down now into areas that follow similar habitat. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the three major mountain lion regions are just uh, ecoregion one, two, and three in the state. And, um, so last year was the first year, um, of being able to, um, enter in and we started up in region one and, uh, which is up here in the North corner. And I was, I was able to get involved in this project. It was, um, they, there's five or six, uh, houndsmen that were con- contracted to do this DNA collection essentially. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, so I was fortunate enough to be one of those fellas. And this year I kind of had it really good just cause it was my own stomping grounds. And so I, I was able to hunt in a lot of my own favorite holes, you know? Right. And, and so that was a pretty neat deal. Um, but the plan for the state then is going to be, um, there'll be two areas within re- region one and then two in region two and two in region three, which is in the South corner of the state, Southwest. And uh, it'll rotate through those areas. And then they're able to go back into those areas, you know, uh, another year, do the same type of work and be able to, to take their baseline data that they, get, that they get off the first time and compare that with years, you know, yeah. subsequent years. And so, so that's where the capture recapture comes in. You go in the first time and you collect data. You come back later yeah. And you see if you're catching the same same lines. Correct, and and by by no means quote me as far as being an expert in the, in that. But the the capture recapture also we when we go through a study area, we go through it all one time, then we go back through it all again. Mm-hmm. And you'll you'll and possibly even a third time if if time allows, during the same year during the same year. Okay. And and so a lot of those individuals what we're maybe getting a sample out of might be sampled duplicate times. Okay. All of that kind of plays into the model, and uh, um, they're able to determine that, you know, they obviously know that that was one individual, even though it was three samples. Sure. Right? That's the whole point of the DNA mm-hmm. thing. And um, um, But they can also see where it was at during, 
December and where it was at in February and where it was at in April. You know, right. so there's there's the ability. Did it follow a, this herd of deer down? Did it? Yeah. You know, did it move up to this region? You know, and so what's what is specifically is your role with it? As so, a, let's so, talk about what the you know people that are contracted to do this study, yeah. but then your specific role with yeah, it. Yeah. So well. and and that's just me. I'm I'm just a I I get to just be a houndsman. Um, I work. Uh, um, basically just contracted to be able to um to collect samples mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm not sure how many contracts they're writing this year but uh there's quite a few you know there's several people and different people have more time than others and and get to hunt more than others and and there's some seniority and priority based on some of that mm-hmm. um but really great people um very good houndsmen you know Cody and ray are awesome they husband and wife team and um um keep black and tans, keep some excellent dogs around. And, and, uh, so, um, yeah, quite a few, um, different houndsmen from around the state. And so then we're all kind of hunting areas that aren't familiar to us too, for, yeah. the, for the most part year after year. And that's so, a pretty good test for your hounds. right? It there. really is. And it's been a, it's been a, a side of actually doing this that, that surprised me. Um, but even in my own backyard, I was forced to go hunt all the corners that I'd just never really been in, you know, cause you, you'll, you'll end up running track on the way there twice, you know, if you just don't head there and go <laughs> yeah. out that area. And so, um, it really stretched me and, and made me, you know, um, not, you know, I've never really been afraid of trying new places, but, but it, I enjoyed that aspect of seeing, seeing it in a different way and, and kind of being forced to go look in new corners and, and, uh, figure it out, figure out where the wolves are, what they're doing, you know, figure out how we can do it. And and this last year, you know, our snow conditions were really poor. Um, they were terrible here yeah, last year. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of um, w- made it for a challenge. Um, and uh, so, but, but we were fortunate. Um, we, we were able to catch, catch some, a lot of cats and then towards the, the end of the year when there was nothing um they they just said as long as you guys keep catching stuff then you guys can keep on hunting and if it gets bad and you don't think it's worth your time you know obviously we're not trying to um beat our heads in the wall but uh but we were fortunate to dogs kept coming up with tracks and kept catching cats and so we we uh really actually finished out the season really well it was uh so it was, it was really enjoyable um I just, you know, say to anybody gets a chance to do that kind of work, man. It's, so, so how many lines? Cool. How many lines do you think you sampled last year? Um, me personally, I, I think I probably sampled, um, thirty-two or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, how many total in the study? I think on the whole study, um, I, I man, I put me on the spot. I don't, I don't know if I've even seen all that data, but I'm, I'm thinking it was about eighty. Mm-hmm. And how big, of, how big of an area? Um, boy, it's big. I'm trying to remember the exact size of it, but, uh, man, you sure can't cover it all by yourself. Let's put it that right. way. Right. Uh, I'm thinking it's like, uh, is it a, um, I think it's 100 square miles. Wow. Something like that. I might be wrong on that. I'd have to look again. The, the, each spe- specific area, is it's all graded out. And uh, was busted into I think five kilometer um, squares, and so you're you're targeting a specific unit or you know um, grid cell each each you know each day, and then and the surrounding cells you know yeah. to some degree. But it's kind of 
you're, you're kind of targeting it in a pretty organized fashion. Right. Um, Scientists always have to break so. down stuff into kilometers in the metric the, system. Yeah, they they definitely are believers in the in the <laughs> metric system, which that's a t- topic for another day, I guess. But let's see, that's a that's a whole dumb, different. Them loggers like me, they just as long as there's lines on a map, I can follow that. I guess. Yeah, but, <laughs> but you know, they're trying to get houndsmen to to yeah. convert over to the metric system. It's like, yeah, tell me the yards or tell me the, you know, my dog's in there 1,200 yards or you yeah. know I need to drive three miles down the road when they start. I want you to drive 3.5 kilometers down this road. Then you got to get out Google and hope you have cell phone coverage so yep. you can convert it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> but the but that work, man, it's been really really neat. And and like I said, I I feel fortunate to be able to be a part of it. And and uh, I'd l- look forward to uh, you know hopefully being a part of that you know for years to come. And and like I said, it's 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 different. And I mean, I can catch a lot more critters not doing study work. Let's put it that way. But yeah, uh, I was going to ask you. So you're headed out to do the study work, and you come across a smoking hot bobcat track. Do you turn loose on it? Oh, that's the worst part of it, man. No, you got to go get the work done. Is that you know, right? So, and uh, um, I I can say that I had a couple days when. I'd find a smoking fresh bobcat track, and I'd go get all my cells done, catch a line down there, and about it five o'clock at night coming home i might kick loose on that same track and <laughs> and uh because i can't let that go to waste you know but yeah that track but no there's uh and, and and the other thing is you're proving out a lot of country that doesn't have cats in it so you right. spend a lot of days snowmobiling and covering covering real estate that is you know that you know full well that has nothing in it hasn't had anything in it for the last two months you know mm-hmm. Um, but that's part of the part of the work that needs done is you need to go and prove out that yeah. that it, it doesn't have anything in right. it, and that's as important as the data that that it does. So, it you know there's a lot of days like that when when that's just how it is. But it's uh you know like I said, I've been felt fortunate to be a part of it and and uh, and you know and obviously it gets me gets me out in the brush. Yeah, you know and, and uh, let's talk about cool. the dogs you're using to do this because that's that's kind of the thing that. Uh, talk to you very long and you you've got a definite passion for uh for the lines of dogs you're a student of pedigrees and and things like that if you ask anybody in this valley they'll tell you if you want if you want to know about bloodlines and things like that then you need to talk to talk to casey (laughs) well that's probably a little um um but but yeah i have been um through the blue ticks you know, been involved with the, the those camera bred dogs through Jim Harrell and some other shirt tail connections that I've mm-hmm. developed through Jim and and uh, and there's there's quite a few guys keeping that those bloodlines going. You know, there's a lot of different guys that are doing it for different reasons in different different ways. Um, but but there's a lot of that blood out there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's um, so I, I've still got the blue dogs, and then here about eight years ago, um, I met. Uh, a fella that through the blue ticks, he's raised the blue ticks for his whole life, and and uh, um, and that's how we got got connected. And and uh, just a he was a real historian, and and learned a ton from him. And and he had these old Walker dogs sitting out back too, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he uh, and I knew his standards for blue ticks, and I knew what you know. Um, I'm like. You know, surely. Uh, so I was really curious about these Walker dogs, and was fortunate enough to get to hunt with some of them. And and uh, man, it was just a, a a clean gene pool of, of Walker dogs that 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 were really similar to the type of hound that these blue dogs were. You know, they're 
cold nosed and and yeah uh, describe them describe the describe nope. the blue ticks and yeah so i i'd say you know in these this line of blue ticks which which um you know people know them as the camera bred dogs but the going further back you know they're sebastian's little blue i'd say is probably the um the the most influential in the modern day camerons mm-hmm. um, and where did that dog come from for those that so don't know? julius sebastian um had those dogs, but but all that bloodline goes back to Elbert Vaughn, mm-hmm. and and so that that being said is uh, you know um, Elbert Vaughn ended up sending out a lot of dogs that made really good big game dogs, mm-hmm. you know, real gritty, tough, catch the last, you know, no no quit um, style of, of big game hounds, and 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 there's a lot of guys that took those bloodlines and mixed them and did different things, different directions. But, uh, this specific line, you know, was really built off of that. And now, um, so, so, so Sebastian and, and, uh, others would know a lot more about those dogs specifically, but was a similar, you know, came from, came from Albert Vaughn and, uh, and those by way of, uh, a few guys there in Idaho, um, Del Cameron ended up with some of those dogs, and mm-hmm. he really bred real tight to, to to some with some sons out of Spashin's Little Blue, and going back to some blood from John Henneman, that was um, Sebastian blood that Henneman had at that time, and uh, um, but there's a lot of other guys involved there in that right. in the formation of those dogs, and uh, and so, but uh, as a type, the dogs that we keep, I'd say are. Um, just pretty dang durable dogs, um, dogs that you can hunt day after day after day. Um, that's an important thing to us. So tough feet and and just no quit. You know, mm-hmm. um, sometimes you know that even borderlines on a little little light on brains. I would say. <laughs> um, now that's that's no, you're not being nice to the to those fellows that have uh, kept those dogs for years. But but I mean, they, those dogs have to be just goers. They can't right. be. You know, so. Um, you know, dog knows that when they're sore and tired, they should find a hole to, to lay down for a day. Why? Um, that might might be a good sign of intelligence, right there. But um, so the blue ticks, going back to that, we look for cold nose ball mouths and and uh, tough feet and no quit. You know, that's probably that style of dog. And and uh, so I, so so with that said about the blue dogs, um, and uh, and and that fella. Uh, Mr. Hatter there, he he kept these line of walker dogs as well, mm-hmm. and and they met they met the same category. You know they're tough. They were they didn't have quit. Um, they had you know they were athletes, and uh, I'd say that about the the Cameron dogs is they're good looking dogs. They're good looking and they and they're athletes and they look mm-hmm. like a hound. You know and and that and and that matters to us too. But um, the walker dogs were the same way. Cold nose, no quit. Um, durable and and tough and and tough minded and and looked like a hound and sounded like a ball mouth hound ought to and and uh, and 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 so anyway I uh, I was fortunate enough to get some of those dogs off them and like I didn't really need to keep two bloodlines going it's it's excessive in a lot of ways but when I found a really clean strain of dogs there that were producing their likeness and uh, and uh, were able to uh, um, and, and those dogs were were 
were producing what I liked and consistently in, in the Walker bloodline, at least around this area, it's pretty tough to find good, strong, hard, tough, cold nose Walker dogs that, yeah. that aren't, that aren't bent <clears throat> towards either slick treeing or, or, or running to where they don't tree well, you know, this mm-hmm. finding a good, accurate dog that in our country, you know, we, we want accuracy. We don't, we don't, you know, it's big enough country and, and, and it's not the biggest country by any means, but but it's big enough country. You don't want to be hiking a few miles into, into open trees, and so. I think a lot of people back east don't understand the importance of the accuracy on a Casey because they haven't experienced it. But some of these ponderosas and stuff out here, are three hundred feet tall. Yeah, and, and we get we got a lot of brushy, you know, spruce and mm-hmm. subalpine fir trees, and you get a bobcat hundred feet in there. And mistletoe, mistletoe firs. Yeah, and yeah. and so. And I'm not saying that, but 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 act, but treeing ability is important to us, you know, because uh, it, it, a lot of times too, or some of this country gets really deep snow, and it's not so much that's that far, but it takes you forever to get there. Yeah, it's just a you know, so you need dogs that stay put, and uh, and you definitely want there to be be game in it when you're there. So I would what I'd say about that is a lot of these dogs, now not all of them by any means, but. Um, quite a few of them take quite a bit of game to where they really tree hard. Mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty track-minded dogs, and uh, uh, personally, I kind of like it that way. I always get kind of worried when I see those puppies that just slam and slobber on the first tree they ever get to. It's like I, I expect to see you know, some of those might be a little bent that direction. But you can't have good Facebook videos if you don't if you don't yeah. have on those dogs. And it don't work for everybody because not yeah. everybody has the ability to put a lot of individ, you know, a lot of trees in front of a, a yearling pup, and they just can't stand the fact that that pup left of three or four of the first trees and is trailing on the second track over here on the other side of the mountain, and he might not even locate that one, and I might spend the rest of the day looking for that pup that trailed three individuals and never stayed at any one of those trees, mm. you know. And that that's frustrating to a lot of guys, and yeah. especially if you got a buddy with you and he doesn't want to be dinking around with that. So it's always harder when it's not your dog. Yeah, and so for him to sit in the pickup all night while you're trying to track down that pup, which, you know, but given some time, and uh, and there's things you can probably do to speed some of that up, you know, as far as uh, getting those dogs to tree a little younger and stuff. But um, and I, I, like I said, and they're not all like that. I mean, they got plenty of them that tree right off the bat the first time but it's just a matter of uh it just depends a lot on the circumstance and that particular individual tree and how easy it was to locate right you know just how those pups will put things together at different speeds based on their own experiences Mm -hmm. but but i i personally have kind of gotten to where i just don't i don't worry about it too much you know and i just keep running them and running them and running them and and yeah i'm gonna have to hike to the top of the mountain in the dark a few times and pick that pup up but but those are always the ones that are the ones I always, you know, when they're six, eight years old and and they're just irreplaceable, you know. Yeah. That, that's been my own experience. Wow. It, so, so, okay, so you had said something about uh, what you look for and, and you talked a lot about different attributes and traits. So if if you, for some reason, let's say that – all your dogs were raptured and no longer existed, but you still wanted to, what would Casey Stutzman go out and look for in a hound to replace what you've got right now? What are the, what are those attributes that are, they got to be there. They don't stay here. I, I, I just would say 
I'd say, I mean, above everything else, I'd say brains. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of didn't even hit on that because I almost feel like that's like a prerequisite no matter what. <laughs> like, um, so intelligence, but, uh, um, but I, I would just look at dogs that are durable and that hunt as hard as I want to, you know, mm-hmm. um, I don't like quitters and, um, and, uh, so I, and, and I'm kind of vain. I, I, they better be good looking, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I've hunted a lot of dogs that were, you know, that weren't maybe the top looking dogs that were t- tremendous. But there's a lot of great looking dogs that get it done the right way. And so I, I, if if I don't have to settle, I sure won't. Right. See, that's the difference between Casey and I. I don't mind an ugly dog as long as it, <laughs> it, it gives it its all every day. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't, like I said, that vanity, uh, you know, I've passed up on some good dogs, and I've sold some dogs that uh, probably would have been smart to keep around for ours. I'm kind of like that, too, really. Yeah. I mean, I like a good-looking dog. Yeah. And we always joke around. We've said it on this podcast before. There's no sense in hunting an ugly dog. <laughs> That's right. You know? Yeah, yeah. I. Um, but, yeah, I think we all, all three of us yeah. understand that, that that's yeah. not the, the yeah. deal-breaker. Yeah. Um, Talking back to that, though, you know, um learning from other fellas and and getting better and trying to develop it my own dogs you know striking ability has been pretty uh you know really been a game changer for me in and being able to um put a lot more miles on dogs and cover a lot more country that that before maybe i was roading through country or, or free casting through country and so rigging ability you know accuracy and and uh um and and durability you know but but Everybody wants a cold nose, you know. I mean, uh, it, it, I rarely do I get people call, calling up looking for a dog that's hotter nosed, you know. Uh, and uh, <laughs> seems like everybody's trying to put put a little more nose in. Why what is they have. why is a cold nose so important for this area that you're hunting? Explain that one. Well, this area because can, if you bring a cold yeah. nose to my area, yeah, we're not out there to build campfires and roast hot dogs. Yeah. You know, we yep. want to be there to treat coons, and and sometimes that if you get a dog that that wants to go out and run every track it comes across you're spending a lot of time that you're not looking at coons yeah especially when you're competition hunting yeah you know if you're if you're breeding a line of dogs and your goal is to uh win competition hunts a, a dog that buries its nose in the ground and mm-hmm. spends an hour to tree one raccoon isn't going to get your picture taken yep yep you know for us it, it, some people don't like it here and and we have some there's i mean if you just hunt easy days here there's a lot of really good condition days to cat hunt here you know obviously so speaking to montana we don't we don't really have summer seasons that we can pursue anything but we have a winter season for bobcat and lion and and that winter season goes from december to the middle of april and so for the most part during those months especially in northwest Montana, we have pretty darn good cat hunting conditions most years. Um, not every day, but within that period of time, you'll have a lot of really good days. Mm-hmm. And so if you just hunt good, fresh snow conditions, you really don't need a tremendous nose. Um, but if you hunt every day and you hunt, the, the, we have a lot of transitional days where there's a lot of ice and then snow and freeze and thaw and freeze and thaw. And, and that's where, you know, where those dogs that are willing to really grind and work hard and, and, and handle a bad track are going to get something caught for you on those days. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, and so, like I said, uh, it, it, it's kind of it's kind of interesting because depending on who you talk to, they may or may not want or need a cold nose. It just depends on their hunting style. Um, you know, the guys that like that need good cold nose, I uh, I talk to all the time are usually outfitters. They're guys that have to get it done this week, no matter what. That's and, what I'm guiding in the swan or wherever, and it's freeze thaw, freeze thaw, rain, freeze thaw. Yeah. I find a track, I need to catch it. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody just paid a lot of money to go on a hunt, and I might not get a good perfect day. So I have to have something, you know. And yeah. then, well, we're kind of lucky, Casey, is when the snow goes away, we got the whole forest. Yeah. They're just road dogs, dirt, yeah. and catch most days. Yeah. And, and that yeah. makes it fun. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's kind of the fun thing about having a cold nose dog out here is when the snow goes, everybody else goes. Casey's out. I'm out. Yeah. And there's a few other local houndsmen that oh, yeah. push hard, yeah. but for the most part, yeah. nobody's when the snow's not here, nobody's gonna try. Yeah, and it's not dry ground. It's just it's just bare ground. It's bare ground and it's frozen ground and it's you know, but it's muddy by noon and and um, it just depends, you know. And and, and I ain't gonna you know, there's there's places that have tougher conditions for sure and a different style of dog is it's gonna be different it's different, it's different condi- conditions in, but i don't care where you go if you're in the desert or or if you're in the rainforest or if you're in the snow country you know it's a they all have their own set of set of challenges right and those dogs really have to learn to handle that particular challenge and excel at it and 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 if you talk to any of those guys the southwest guys well, uh, what i've keep learning is you know they they're looking for consistency just like we are right just a consistent track you know a, a track that was laid in a consistent environment mm-hmm. that that environment can just be dust and can be consistently 80 90 but that consistent environment is going to preserve that scent mm-hmm. you know it's those it's all the transitions that that become the challenges those guys they just i mean a lot of them guys hate it when they get an inch of snow because it just means that they might yeah they might get one quick easy race but then they're gonna have slush and mud and right. slop and you know they're gonna lose the ability to cold trail um until as those those conditions um get consistent again. yeah so i'll get your opinion on this I, I we've talked about it a few times but a dog that grows up, no hounds, every houndsman, we talked about different conditions. Yeah, some places are tougher or they have different challenges than other places. You know, and I, I think that my, my theory is that a dog that has got drive, he's got brains, he's got those two things, wants to catch game. If he is given enough time in a certain area, if he's got that drive to do it, then he's going to figure it out. I mean, we re- imported dogs from Europe. We import them from, and we ship dogs to other areas. And sometimes they don't work out, um, but a lot of times they do. Yeah. You know, especially if you get them in the hounds of a houndsman that can see you know, just little glitches and little glimmers of hope. Sure. And then they take that and they polish that gem a little bit yeah. and give them that chance, then they can excel. But I think a lot of times, <clears throat> you know, you, you sit there and it's like, oh, you know, dog coming from this part of the country will never make it here. I've never seen the one, one that <laughs> sure. would make it. But a true houndsman is a guy that can say, that was, that was what he did right there was kind of neat. Let's see if we can do that again and develop that in them yeah and and there may be different tools you need in your toolbox for different real estate but 
uh, it was a good learning experience for me. Um, the summer I was working down there in in, in the Four Corners area in, the, in in Utah, I was a- able to pursue up there in the San Juans. Oh, you were and, way down there. Then. Yeah, you weren't in northern Utah. You were down yep. in the. And I w- I did spend quite a bit of time up in the northern corner too, mm-hmm. just below the Uinta Mountains. I, I built a house up there also, so I I got both corners of it. But um, we were down there in the San Juans, and then we went up and hunted in the Sals and stuff. And I mean. That was an eye open for me. I mean, there's a ton of houndsmen during their spring training, especially a lot mm-hmm. of guys travel in, put put in camps up there. So there's <coughs> guys, there were big camps everywhere. That was a big shocker to me. Um, but man, I I I just thought that my dogs were no good after two weeks of driving that country. I know there's bears in here, and mm-hmm. I couldn't get a strike. I, you know, and I started hiking some ridges, and we finally got us couple started and and then um I, I ended up bumping one day in with a local kid there that let me tag along and his dogs just rocked a caught a bear and and uh i kicked a couple in there that kind of came in late you know and then then the next for the next while there we we started catching you know but there was a big, yeah. big time period for me to get those dogs acclimated and 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 they had the year before you know i i've been fortunate enough to draw a non-resident in idaho quite a few years and uh seems like not every year but but i had gone from that same set of dogs had just done a tremendous dog in this kind of type of climate in north idaho montana like like i hunt and then and then gone down there and, it, and man they looked like a bunch of pot lickers for a while yeah but, but they came around you know they came it, around and did good exactly so. and it, it, you know just to kind of draw a perspective on this thing you know you can take an accomplished i know several accomplished whitetail hunters from indiana that if you brought them out of here, the first year they hunt in the West, they have marginal success. You know, yeah. but the more time they spend here, yeah, the more they learn it. And I'm not trying to say that dogs and people are alike or anything like that. Yeah. But a bear, it's it's that minuscule how much scent do I need to strike a bear? You know, when I'm in Montana, boom, I can smell it. Or, you know, a lion track, boom, I can smell it. It's not dry ground, it's it's bare ground. Sure. There's more moisture in it. They don't need as much scent. But if you take them and you put them in that environment long enough, then they're, and you show them that there's actually a lion, they start figuring that out and they start thinking, hey, yep. this, is all, this is a fresh track right here. It doesn't smell like a fresh track in Montana, but for the four corners, that's a fresh track, and I'm going to run it. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to catch it. Yeah, and that... Uh, Do you think... Is that your experience? Absolutely, and I think that goes back to that excitability. I, I really feel like... I don't know, maybe I'm way off base, but my perception of a lot of it, a lot of what we call cold nose is an ability for those dogs to stay uh, committed or excited about a, a minuscule amount of scent. Yes. And and continue to work with that minuscule amount of scent and, get, <clears throat> and maintain that excitement level where, where they feel like they're going to do something with it yeah and so uh, you know the actual the actual process that each individual dog can can out of those five dogs they probably all know it's there yeah if they if they pay attention to it but but it doesn't mean that they're gonna think that i can get something done with it a blue ticks nasal plane they can they're they're not that much difference if they were born and raised in the four corners and they're if they're born and raised in northwest montana or indiana right you know it's going to be the same if you took it and dissected it you could count the ridges in there they're going to be very 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 similar to the point that you or i can't tell the difference you know it's what they do with it between the time that scent comes in that nose 
processes through the, the through the uh, olfactory senses and how that registers in their brain. Yep. And then yep. it goes right to their heart and makes them think, I need to catch it. Absolutely. And then, you know, and with that, I, I really, and this is kind of the conversation back to the wolves a little bit, but I, after getting wolf hit a few times, I, I quit running old stuff. But really, the old, old tra- cold trailing really never was the... I wouldn't say the the link between having accidents with wolves. It was ju- it's just kind of one of those things. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I kind of got to where I didn't really want to have dogs out cold trailing for six eight hours, you know. And I and I just started changing the way. I, and, and I kind of quit that because and I went back to just hunting. If they if they wanted to take it, I let them take it mm-hmm. because I really felt like I was going to lose that aspect in my dogs if I wasn't testing them. Mm-hmm in their ability to cold trail or the desire to cold trail. And, and I felt like even genetically and everything else, it's, in, it's imperative that I maintain that, yeah. that skill set. So I, I, I worked with them, but because I didn't do that for a while, I actually had a few dogs. That, it, they did get better with time, but mm-hmm. since they were two, three-year-old dogs that I hadn't really done a lot of cold trailing with, I mean, a little bit, they just have to cold trail in some poor situations once in a while, but I wasn't really intentionally driving them on it. And, those same dogs, once I made them work hard at those bad tracks, mm-hmm. you know, they came around. So I really believe cold trailing is is, is a taught uh, discipline as much as it is, yeah. you know, you got to, they got to find success working with a terrible track. And, re, you know, even if it takes all day, at the end of that day, tomorrow, they're going to work twi- just as hard on the next time they have port because there's hope. You know, they kind of, <laughs> they know yeah. that there's something at the end of this. And if if they've never been forced to do that, and every time they they can't work with the track, they come back. He throws them in the in the box and moves on to the better track. They get to where they they are lazy with with minimum. I agree. What's so, your experience, Larry? What do you think? No, I agree, hundred percent. You know, and, and I I kind of went to that same curve as he's talking about. Like after seeing his dog get smacked by wolves, it's like wow, that's ugly. I don't want to see that ever again. So it's like, well, this track was probably 24 hours old, but I, maybe there's one 10 minutes old up the hill. Yeah. So they drive up, well, here's one, here's 10-minute old track. I'll just catch this one real quick. Yeah. You know, and, and then finally, and then, you know, guiding, you know, I, so my dogs kind of got lazy on these tracks, but I got mm. a client that wants to catch this cat now. Yeah. So the only way we're going to get it is if I walk the track out because I didn't do my part. Yeah. And and made that dog work. So now I got to do the dog work because mm-hmm. I failed my dogs. But they when, came when, around. When, yeah, and they come around. But when you see when you see the hounds get smashed, it's it'll leave an imprint. Yeah. 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 You know, tying it back to even going back east. You know, I can turn a dog loose down a little ditch between two cornfields, and that dog's going to shoot out there a hundred yards, and he's going to probably strike a coon track but if i want a dog that's going to throw dirt in my face get gone in the dark and go find a coon then i got to put him in situations where he's not going to find a coon track real easy sure you know so it's it's a matter it's the same thing whether it's lion hunting here or coon hunting back east if you're you've got to challenge those dogs you can't always just put them right on top of it Everybody, you can treat coons with a mediocre dog all day long, or a lion with a mediocre dog all day long. But that isn't doesn't mean you have a great hound. You know, can that dog 
tree them in adverse condition? Can they tree them in a snowstorm? Can they, you know, can they do it after it just got done pouring down rain when it hadn't rained for three months? You know, yeah. you get a dog like that, and but it's our responsibility as houndsmen to put those situations in front of them. Um, you know, a lot of times it's frozen bean field, it's 600 yards to the woods. That dog's got to get there. Yeah. You know, he's not going to tree it in the middle of that bean field. Yeah. If I only turn loose on stuff on coons that I see crossing the road, then, you know, what? that's not that's not preparing or getting the most out of that hound and, and tapping into the, all that ability. And that's what separates a guy that's a hunter from a houndsman, really. Yeah. You know, knowing what your dogs need and not being afraid to put the work in to get them there. Because you're not going to have high success rates when you first start it, you know. Right. I, I don't know. I, it sounds like you probably do the same thing that I do. I'll see things in dogs, and it's like, man, I need to work on this. So I'll specifically look for si situations where I can put them in that situation. And it's a, it can be a frustrating thing. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, I can look back to, and I just, you know, I think so many of my good dogs have always been good in spite of me. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I, you look at the <laughs> learning curve that goes into it and you're I mean, still you're just always learning something and wishing. And, and, and but hopefully you're making changes and you're setting things up better so that your pups that you got right now aren't going to maybe have to walk through that same struggle that you put in because of your poor training put into those, you know, another dog that took a while to get to that point. Yeah. But but patience to me has been my best friend in training hounds. And, and isn't that something? And. And, and, you know, I wasn't always super patient, but every time I have been, it's always paid off. And, and so I'm more patient now, which brings back another topic, though. It, genetically speaking, you know, nobody wants a dog that got a weight on. And so you're still always looking for those early starting real natural go-get-it-done dogs. Right. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even saying that, you know, that, that's, that's the goal. But, uh, but with quirks and challenges and struggles, you know, most of the time, if you just are consistent and you keep with it and keep putting those dogs in circumstances they can succeed at, and you throw a lot of patience in there. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> and uh, that seems to be the most common thing when I talk to accomplished houndsmen. You know, when they've reached that level where, you know, you can say that they're a houndsman is uh, patience. You know, and, and patience is such a key to training the dogs. I know when I started, I probably kicked a lot of dogs to the curb and cold dogs that probably would have made pretty good dogs just because I wasn't patient enough. Yeah. You know, sent them down the road, and, and I've seen dogs that I sent down the road that somebody else turned into a, a, a nice hound. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. why couldn't I do that? Yeah. Why didn't I do that? You know, yeah. I, I'll, can I buy it back? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. 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 No. I like him real well. And another side of that, um, you know, I I have a lot of individual dogs that I know would be better in somebody else's yard. And and uh and that's a tough thing because I know one like that. Yeah. Because yeah. uh um because of the way they they hunt, you know, um I, I I keep keep quite a few dogs around and uh um and and for me, I'm always putting time into into what's going to be the future of the bloodline, mm -hmm. you know. And and so I might have an individual that's going to be a great individual, but maybe there's something that they're not going to get. I'm not going to breed to that individual. So I might hunt him still, keep him around, but he doesn't get the attention, you know, that the other ones that I'm trying to prove out before they go in the breeding pen are going to get. 
and plus he has to take they all have to take turns somewhat identify know? something that, that well, that's a great dog that that gets it done in the woods but doesn't cut it for the breeding pen and, and it may just be looks it might be a mouth you know i've had a, a few dogs that just had just terrible you know squally chopped mouths on them and that's not what i try to produce and uh you know and that that may be stupid. Maybe someday I'll look back and say, gosh, we should have just bred to that dog. But I, I don't want to have a, a yard full of dogs that sound like that mm-hmm. in the future. And, uh, and and voice used to be a big thing. Everybody wanted to know what kind of voice your dogs had, you know. Yeah. It, it's pretty funny. The guys, especially guys that have started and never um, never ran hounds without any tracking equipment, they, uh, they, they don't even think about the voice. They care right. less what it sounds like. Right. And uh, – I was blessed with a dog with a giant mouth as my first dog. And there's no way on earth that I would have been able to, I probably would have quit if I wouldn't have had that dog because I could just always find him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's real consistent to boot but, and stay treat. But, but he, uh, it really impressed upon me still the value in keeping in the gene pool good mouths. Mm-hmm. And it's possible. That's the whole thing. It's not like you, you have to super compromise. But, but out of a litter, I might have two, and I'm going to pick that one with a better mouth if they're if they're comparable in every other yeah. aspect. I like listening to my hounds, so that matters to me. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, but something like that. But uh, because I have a lot of dogs, they end up taking turns. And so the next guy who owns four hounds, you know, he's going to kick loose all four of them dogs every day. And, uh, you know, those dogs are going to get way more time on the ground than if I've got, say, you know, I'm, I'm rotating between 12 or something, you know, they, they just have to take turns. Yeah. And, um, and, and I tend to run too many dogs on tracks because of that same reason. I'm trying to get as much out of each track as I can. And, and that is a, sometimes a big detriment to an individual that I should have, that needed that track all to themselves today. Yeah. What you, so, de- what you're describing, I think is, uh, you know, probably the simplest way is when I turned 16, I just wanted a car that would go down the road. You know, right. and get me from point A to point B, and yeah. then I went to, ah, well, if I took the took the muffler off this truck and put a straight pipe on it, it sound really good. Yeah, and then it got into, you know, I didn't follow through, but then you see people that really became gearheads, and now they want this sort of cam travel and this, you know, the, yeah. you know, all these different things and take. So it's like what you're describing is. You don't just want a dog that that puts a lion in the tree. You want them to do it the way you want them to do it. Right. I um, back to that though. It, it, it I have a great appreciation for the real discerning breeders out there uh, of their struggles, and they get a lot of it, a lot. Of, it's easy for the guy who's got two hounds and hunts the wheels off of them to criticize the breeder who has more dogs than he really can hunt. And a lot of those dogs might not ever reach their complete full potential because they're they're pregnant some of their life. They're, you know, I have individual. You know, you, you end up having males that I can't risk losing this male. He's too good. He's three years old and catches anything with hair on it. And I have to get pups out of him. Prove those pups out of him out of certain crosses mm-hmm. before I risk losing that dog. And with the wolves and if you're hunting in rough bear country or anything else, you'll start getting careful with that individual. 100%. And he's the best dog yeah. you've ever yeah. owned, and yet yeah. you're not kicking him loose. And right. most, a lot of houndsmen can't understand that. They're like, why on earth would you have a hound that good and he's not good enough to go hunting? 
You're just like, and, and so the struggle of, uh, of, of uh, so I have a great appreciation for the breeders of the past and the present that uh, have truly, you know, made those sacrifices because they're sacrifices. When, when the best dog you've ever looked at and you had to leave him home today and take his pups, you know, it's not that you don't enjoy it today, but there's no dog in the world that wants to go more than that dog. Right. Mm. And so that takes a lot more, it's, it takes a lot more strength than you'd think to leave him in the kennel. You know, because if you lose him, you're, you've lost a lot. It may be irreplaceable genetically. Yeah, you know, depending yeah, on and, what and, you have. And we're talking about a lot of because we're in Northwest Montana, but everybody, every place has got its hazards. You Absolutely. Know? Mike Colley lost a dog to an alligator. Yeah, in Louisiana, yeah. A, and a couple months ago. The highways are everywhere. Highways. I yeah, mean, I run. Been... I run risk every time I turn a dog loose yep. to a crossing road and getting smacked. I've never. Yeah, I have. I've had one hit, uh, but. Um, and we hunt around some railroads, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, and, and just health issues, you know, and just, yeah. Just we don't know. Freak you go out there and, and how many stories do you hear about? I thought the dog was healthy. I go out there the next day and it was dead in the kennel. Yeah. You know, yeah. Just you, there's down. always tragedies that happen. Yeah. If you spend enough time doing it. But, um, but you control all that you can. And right. the things you can't control, you, you have to let it go too. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I guess I've 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 had a great appreciation for um, a lot of uh, a lot of those breeders of the past and those guys that I'm fortunate enough to have, you know, th- those those dogs running through my, the veins of my dogs, mm-hmm. you know, of those guys that were discerning and did what it took to make crosses happen, even though it was expensive and it didn't make sense and it was difficult, and then they they, they you know they it, it doesn't all just come easy, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. and. And so I think it's important that uh, guys give, um, you know, give some credit back to those old, old, you know, whoever built up whatever it is that you're hunting. Be thankful for it and and do your best with it. But don't think you're an island on yourself and that you've plucked this out of thin air and the magic right. water out of your yard is somehow better than the magic water out of somebody else's. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's it's easy to be the king when you're the only one on the island. <laughs> yeah, you know, there you go. Yep. So, um, but yeah, you do get too picky, just like you're saying sometimes, you know, yep. but you know, the, the, the adverse of that is, is 15 years down the road, 25 years down the road, you, those dogs aren't going to resemble what, what your standard was when you, you know, what you started with. Mm-hmm. So you kind of got to be picky, but. Well, to kind of wrap this thing up, Casey, I'm just curious if, what advice would you give to houndsmen to to young people who are trying to strive to become houndsmen just because you've got a dog box and a dog in the box doesn't make you a houndsman yeah what are what's what's something a piece of advice or something you want to tell the young aspiring hunters out there that that want to get into hounds besides don't do it right i was gonna say that's the that's (laughs) the one thing i think most people might say but I, i um i would say be humble and learn anything you can from whoever you can, and and then hunt the wheels off them. Yeah, you know, it's uh, you'll learn more from them dogs than any other way. So, mm-hmm. my, it's not an easy it's not an easy education, but it's the best one. Mm-hmm. So, Larry, what do you get to tell them? Yeah, I agree with Casey. Just work your butt off. Spend a lot of time in the woods. Bring your chains, snow shovels, pack a lunch. Yep. Just just go out there and give her and enjoy God's creation and 
he put, it, he, he put it out there for us to use. So yeah, get after it. Get after it. Yep. Yep. For sure. Don't be afraid to ride in the truck with Larry Anderson. That's right. Yep. Yep. So Maybe keep one know. hand on the door, you know. But exactly. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. It. Uh, but. Yeah, I, yeah, it's truly been something that's blessed my life, you know. But. Um, you know, and, you think about it. That's that. You, that's an interesting thing. You know, the the opportunities that I've had in my life because I became involved in hounds. Yeah. You know, hunting places that most people have never seen. You know, yep. people get in their cars and they drive drive down the interstate, and they say, "Oh, those mountains are beautiful," but they're never up in those places. You yep. know, where you can look back down and look across. You know those experiences and not only the experiences in the places but the people that you get to meet absolutely and and uh you know and i and i think uh getting to spend most of those times in those places with my kids and you know and my wife and we all hunt together my boys hunt with me all the time and and my daughters too and and so it's you know it's it's, it's even extra special when you're in them places with with people you love and or a good hunting partner and yeah you got you know two faithful hounds sitting by you you know right following you out of the woods at night you know that you know it, it truly is a i mean it's an easy way to romanticize it i suppose but that's right but it, it it truly is that way you know i think that's what keeps all of us so crazy about it yeah yeah well any final thoughts larry no summed it up yeah summed yeah. up just sitting over there breathing in the mic and just breathing in the mic yeah no okay, any final thoughts casey I don't think so, man. Summed it up, huh? Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking time to come down here and talk is talk to us. And yeah. Tell well, us about mountain lion studies and hunting in northwest Montana and yep, it's helicopter good. logging and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, we uh, we get to do a little everything, I suppose. We're grateful for it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I appreciate the chance. and, and uh, All right, Casey. Well, I'm going to wrap this thing up. And we wrap it up the same way every time. So we may not hunt dogs that look alike. We may want things out of, you know, different things out of our hounds. But you follow your hounds and I'll follow mine. 